From New York, this is Democracy Now! Let's tell it like it is. Any damage, whether intentional or not, to Europe's largest nuclear power plant in Zaporizhia or to any other nuclear facility in Ukraine could spell catastrophe, not only for the immediate vicinity, but for the region and beyond. The United Nations is calling on Russia and Ukraine to create a demilitarized zone around Zaporizhia, the largest nuclear power plant in Europe, to avoid a nuclear catastrophe. Ukraine and Russia have accused each other of shelling the plant, which has been occupied by Russia since March. Ukraine is now considering shutting it down over safety concerns. We'll go to Ukraine for the latest, then to Somalia. I've been shocked to my core these past few days by the level of pain and suffering we see so many Somalis enduring. Famine is at the door, and today we are receiving a final warning. With Somalia facing a looming famine, we go to Mogadishu to speak with the UN's humanitarian coordinator for Somalia and to Ethiopia, where drought is devastating East Africa. Finally, attack philanthropy. We look at how the secretive right-wing billionaire Barry Side has used his fortune to attack climate science, fight Medicaid expansion, remake the higher education system in a conservative mold. All that and more coming up. Welcome to Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. In Ukraine, there are fresh reports of heavy fighting around the Russian-occupied Zaporizhia nuclear power station, where local residents have been urged to evacuate. Earlier today, Ukraine's top nuclear inspector said the deteriorating security situation may force officials to close the plant in order to help prevent a nuclear disaster. In Kyiv, Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky said Wednesday a counteroffensive in the east has succeeded in pushing back Russian forces from around the besieged city of Kharkiv. At the United Nations, the U.S. and its allies accused Moscow of forcibly moving up to 1.6 million Ukrainians to Russia. Speaking to the U.N. Security Council Wednesday, Assistant Secretary General for Human Rights Ilsa Bronskaras said some Ukrainians have faced arbitrary detention, forcible deportation to Russia, torture and enforced disappearance. She also cited credible allegations of forced transfers of unaccompanied children to Russian-occupied territory in Ukraine or to the Russian Federation itself. We are concerned that the Russian authorities have adopted a simplified procedure to grant Russian citizenship to children without parental care, and that these children would be eligible for adoption by Russian families. Under Article 50 of the Fourth Geneva Convention, the Russian Federation is prohibited from changing these children's personal status, including nationality. U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken has arrived in Kyiv for meetings with U.S. Embassy staff. The State Department says Blinken will announce $2 billion in new military financing to Ukraine and 18 other countries the U.S. says are at risk of Russian aggression. That's separate from a $675 million military package Blinken announced earlier today, part of an unprecedented $40 billion U.S. aid package for Ukraine passed by Congress in May.
Meanwhile, Belarus has launched war games along its border with Poland. Belarus is a major ally of Russia, and its territory has been used by Russian forces throughout the war in Ukraine. The United States military has tested an intercontinental ballistic missile capable of delivering multiple nuclear warheads anywhere on Earth. The Air Force says it successfully fired a Minuteman III missile early Wednesday morning from Vandenberg Space Force Base in California. A Pentagon spokesperson said U.S. officials had notified Russia about the test in advance in accordance with treaty obligations. The purpose of the ICBM test launch program is to demonstrate the readiness of U.S. nuclear forces and provide confidence in the security and effectiveness of the nation's nuclear deterrent. In Texas, a federal judge has ruled in favor of a group of Christians who sued to overturn a federal requirement that employer-based health insurance plans cover the cost of drugs that prevent the spread of HIV. U.S. District Judge Reed O'Connor ruled Wednesday the Affordable Care Act's requirement that health insurers cover of pre-exposure prophylaxis, or PrEP, violates religious freedom of Christian-owned businesses. The plaintiffs argued the requirement forces them to provide coverage for drugs that, quote, facilitate and encourage homosexual behavior, prostitution, sexual promiscuity, and intravenous drug use, unquote. Clinical studies show PrEP reduces the risk of getting HIV from sex by about 99 percent. Judge O'Connor is a far-right George W. Bush appointee who's previously called the Affordable Care Act unconstitutional. His ruling threatens to cut off sexual and reproductive health care for more than 150 million U.S. residents who have employer-based health care plans. Primary care and HIV physician Dr. Oni Blackstock tweeted in response, quote, This makes no sense, and I'm assuming is being driven solely by homophobia and transphobia disgusting and inhumane, she said. A federal judge in Washington, D.C., has rejected a bid by the founder of the far-right Oath Keepers militia to delay his trial on seditious conspiracy charges over his role in the January 6th assault on Congress. Prosecutors say 57-year-old former U.S. Army paratrooper Stuart Rhodes ordered Oath Keepers under his command spread out in a military formation inside the Capitol looking for House Speaker Nancy Pelosi, while a heavily armed quick reaction force stood by at a hotel just outside Washington ready to take action. This comes as a new report reveals more than 370 law enforcement professionals appear to be linked to the Oath Keepers. The Anti-Defamation League found the names among some 38,000 listed as members in a leaked Oath Keepers membership list. They include police chiefs and sheriffs and more than 80 people who were running either for office or already serving as elected officials. In Haiti, thousands of people rallied in the capital, Port-au-Prince, and other cities on Wednesday, demanding safer streets, affordable food and medicine, and the resignation of Prime Minister Ariel Henry. I face hunger and an expensive life. I can't send my children to school. I can't pay for my house. Misery, mess. I can't go out because of the insecurity. Ariel Henry is a murderer, a criminal, and perpetrator of the assassination of Juvenal Moïse. We do not have time. We are here in the streets to demand the departure of these criminal murderers. 
Human rights groups estimate criminal gangs control over half of Haiti's territory, filling a power vacuum left behind by the assassination of President Jovenel Moïse in July of 2021. In the occupied West Bank, Israeli forces shot and killed a 20-year-old Palestinian man during a raid on the Al-Farah refugee camp early Wednesday. Family members say Yunus Rasantea was shot in the chest from a distance of about 100 meters. This is his twin brother, Hussein, who witnessed the killing. I asked him not to cross the street since a soldier might be taking aim. As soon as he crossed the street, a soldier immediately shot him. It's the latest of what have become daily incursions by Israel's military into the occupied Palestinian territories. In China, the death toll from Monday's earthquake in Sichuan province has risen to 82. Dozens more remain missing, and rescue crews trying to reach remote areas have been hampered by rain, flash floods and mudslides. The earthquake has also compounded China's efforts to combat COVID-19. On Wednesday, authorities extended a week-long lockdown of Sichuan's capital city, Chengdu, home to 21 million people. China's reporting about 2,000 coronavirus infections a day as it's struggles to maintain its zero-COVID strategy. In Canada, the second suspect in a mass stabbing in Saskatchewan has died, reportedly of self-inflicted wounds shortly after his arrest. Miles Sanderson and his brother Damien were wanted in connection with the killing of 10 people and the wounding of 18 others on Sunday, all but one of them members of the James Smith Cree Nation. Damien Sanderson was found dead the day after the attacks, according to police. Many questions remain about the case, such as the brother's motivation for the mass killing and how Miles Sanderson was able to stab himself to death while in police custody. In Tennessee, a gunman went on a day-long rampage across the city of Memphis on Wednesday, shooting seven people, four of them dead, across eight different crime scenes before he was finally arrested late Wednesday. Police say the 19-year-old suspect streamed the violence from his cell phone on Facebook Live. Much of Memphis remained shut down throughout the evening after residents were warned to shelter in place. Meanwhile, a new report by Reform Austin News finds the number of mass shootings across Texas rose by over 62 percent in the year after Republican Governor Greg Abbott signed a bill making it legal for anyone in Texas over the age of 21 to openly carry a gun in public without a permit or license. A Las Vegas public official has been arrested for the murder of investigative journalist Jeff Gehrman. Clark County Public Administrator Robert Tellis was the subject of a series of his reports uncovering claims of bullying and retaliation that Gehrman wrote for the Las Vegas Review-Journal. Gehrman was found dead with stab wounds outside his home Saturday morning. The 69-year-old veteran journalist covered Las Vegas for over 40 years and was one of, quote, Nevada's most accomplished and trusted journalists, according to the Review-Journal. And in Seattle, Washington, 6,000 teachers and other public school workers went on strike Wednesday morning just as classes were set to begin for some 50,000 students. The teachers' union is demanding smaller caseloads for both students and teachers, better salaries and more resources for special ed and English language learners. We don't want to be out here. We want to be in our building with our students. We miss our kids. We were hoping for a great start to the year. What they're trying to do is cut the special education and then um, not offer any, you know, and put the kids in regular 
what are called general education classes. And those are some of the headlines. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman, joined by Democracy Now! co-host Nermeen Sheikh. Welcome, Nermeen. Hi, Amy, and welcome to our listeners and viewers across the country and around the world. Well, we begin today's show in Ukraine, where residents near the Russian-held Zaporizhia nuclear power plant are begin being urged to evacuate as fighting continues in the area. The International Atomic Energy Agency is calling for a safety and security protection zone to be immediately set up around the facility to order, in order to avoid a nuclear disaster at Europe's largest nuclear power plant. The IAEA issued a report Tuesday on the dire conditions at the plant after investigators visited the site last week. Russia and Ukraine have accused each other of attacking the plant, which has been controlled by Russia since March. The IAEA Director General Rafael Grossi spoke Tuesday. The physical uh, attack, wittingly or unwittingly, uh, the hits that this facility has uh, received and that I could personally see and uh, assess together with my experts is simply um, uh, unacceptable. We are playing with fire and something very, very catastrophic could take place. A specific recommendation in my report that the operator should be allowed to return to its clear and routine line of responsibilities and authorities at an appropriate work environment must be reestablished including with proper family support for the staff. Ukraine is now considering shutting down the Zaporizhia nuclear power station over safety concerns. For more, we're joined by two guests. Alexei Pasyuk is with us, deputy director of the Ukrainian NGO EcoAction, where his focus is on energy and nuclear energy. And Edwin Lyman is joining us, director of nuclear power safety at the Union of Concerned Scientists, co-author of the book Fukushima, The Story of a Nuclear Disaster. He recently wrote an article headlined, Can the Zaporizhia Nuclear Plant Avoid a Major Major disaster. We welcome you both to Democracy Now! from D.C. and Kyiv. Let's go to Washington, D.C. first. Edwin Lyman, your assessment of the IAEA report. How dire is the situation? Can a nuclear disaster be averted? Well, Amy, the IAEA doesn't usually use such strong language, so I think it's important to take notice when they do. And their warnings are pretty pretty clear. Unless the fighting stops, unless the shelling around and on the plant site stops and it allows workers to be able to restore the backup power systems that are now all disabled, then the plant is really skating on thin ice and is very unstable. So uh, there is a great concern here. Uh, and Alexei, could you uh, uh, respond to the IAE report, uh, your uh, uh, response to, to their assessment of the situation at the nuclear power plant? Yeah. Hello. Uh, well, first of all, I think we need to understand uh, the nature of uh, International Atomic Energy Agency. I think there are a lot of expectations from organization and um, which uh, has a pretty limited impact. I mean, they were designed basically to promote nuclear while also trying to prevent spread of the radioactive materials. So uh, I personally didn't expect much from their visit to the power plant because this, the, just the fact that the Russian army is enough to 
bring this concern because they intervene basically in secure in, in safety processes which are on the plan. So um, this is what um, Ukraine wanted to hear to to get the confirmation is that Russia basically intervened in the safety and um, the idea that the only way to have it safe is to demilitarize the area. Uh, give us some background here. I mean, Russia occupied this plant uh, in March, very soon after uh, their invasion of Ukraine. Why do you think they occupied the plant? I mean, this plant provides something like 20 percent uh, of all of uh, Ukraine's uh, electric supply. Well, I think uh, we must uh, stress really this fact that the sole fact that they attacked a power plant was uh, in a way already breaking uh, Geneva Convention protocol, which says uh, this kind of uh, sites shouldn't be attacked. Uh, it, it comes to the nuclear or to big dams. And it's actually in violation of a couple of of, uh, of decisions made by International Atomic Energy Agency member states. Uh, why they did it? Well, first of all, as you try to cover the area, if there is a nuclear power plant, you basically it's on your way you go to there. But uh, indeed, uh, it's the biggest power plant in the region, I mean, in Europe. And uh, this is the nature of nuclear power, unfortunately, that you have these major power plants where the generation is very much concentrated. So once you're in control of the plant, you are in control of the big chunk of electricity production. But also, I think uh, uh, Russia at this moment uses uh, the power plant as a kind of a safe base because uh, Ukrainians is obviously very limited in the amount of uh, military attack they can put you know on on the on the military which is on now on the side and Russia is using the site of nuclear power plant to basically attack Ukraine over the river uh, with uh, artillery Alexei Pasu, can you explain the the military situation around Zaporizhia? I mean, extremely significant. You have both Russia and Ukraine accusing the other of the shelling. What do you understand is happening and how the plant is being used? And um, how many of the plants themselves—what, there are six there—this is the largest station in Europe—have um, been shut down already? Look, the, let me start from the last one. Uh, I think uh, this is uh, one of the discussions which is happening as to why out of six units there were recently like two units working. It's uh, even on the right after attack when Russia occupied the station when they were shooting on site, uh, the, there were two units which were operating, they were shut down, but then they were restarted again. This is because uh, um, the, the, the power plant is important as electricity source for the region, both for occupied territories, where Russia wants also to have uh, electricity supply, and the Ukrainian-controlled territories. So, um, in, and, uh, in terms of military, that area is um, under Russian control in general, but there's something which we cannot really have details about what is happening all around, because there, um, there were shooting from different sides, 
which is difficult to estimate. We have we have some uh, all evidence when there were uh, Ukrainians were attacking. There is this footage on some of the um, Russian um, like uh, soldiers, basically on the camp just outside uh, the the power plant. Uh, but as to the attacks uh, on uh, on site, it's difficult indeed to say who does it because there are also this question that there are like four electricity lines going out of the power plant, and there could be different interests uh, to put them down. And Ed, Edwin Lyman, I mean, one of the things that the uh, IAEA report concluded um, is that there's no indication, at least at the moment, of elevated radiation levels at the plant, uh, though the Ukrainian nuclear uh, state company uh, has said that radiation monitoring sensors have been damaged. And so it's not really possible to measure uh, radiation levels so accurately and elevation and radiation levels. Could you comment on that and, and what you think is, is going on? Yes, well, by all accounts, there haven't been uh, any enough damage to any of the safety systems to compromise the nuclear reactor safety or the safety of spent fuel. There was damage to a building that houses a low-level radioactive waste, and that could have led to some release of um, contamination, but probably nothing that you would detect far from the site. But it's also important to know that it it is very possible to measure very, very low levels of radioactivity far away from the actual release. So if there were an, a, a larger release of radioactivity, it could be detected uh, in Western Europe and other stations around the world. So there's no way that uh, it could be concealed for very long if there were a severe event at the plant. Uh, however, the situation is unstable. Uh, right now, there's apparently no off-site power going to the plant. And my understanding is only one reactor is operating at very low power, and it's only operating to power itself and the other uh, reactors which are shut down. And so it, this one reactor is holding itself up by its bootstraps. That's an unusual and unstable configuration for a nuclear power plant. And that's, uh, again, a great concern. Unless the off-site power is restored rapidly, then this plant should be shut down. Uh, can you respond, Edwin Lyman, to the European Union set to donate five and a half million potassium iodide tablets to Ukraine, um, uh, this to deal with the possibility of radiation around Zaporizhia? Explain what that means. Yes, well, in a nuclear reactor accident, one of the major releases of radioactivity is a radioactive isotope of iodine. And because the thyroid takes up iodine um, preferentially, that radioactive iodine can concentrate in the thyroid and deliver radiation to a small area and uh, significantly increase the risk of cancer. And after the Chernobyl accident in 1986, one of the most obvious consequences was an epidemic of thyroid cancer among children, ordinarily a very unusual disease. So there were many thousands, possibly uh, tens of thousands of thyroid cancers associated with that accident. If you take stable iodine within six hours of exposure, 
it will prevent the uptake of the radioactive iodine. So that's one measure for addressing that one consequence of a nuclear accident. But a nuclear reactor is a soup of hundreds of different isotopes, and they all interact with the body in different ways. And radioactive or stable iodine can only address one of those pathways. And Edward Lyman, uh, you know, one of the the issues that the uh, IAEA report uh, raised is uh, the situation for workers at the plant who've been working now, of course, for several months under conditions of extreme stress, uh, on top of which uh, some of the operating staff at the facility uh, don't have unrestricted access uh, to some areas. Uh, that is, no staff have access to, to some areas in the facility. So could you talk about that, the concerns about uh, workers being exhausted and working under stressful uh, conditions and also what it means that uh, what the risks are of workers not being granted access, unrestricted access uh, to certain areas of the plant. Yes, yeah, so you can't really understate the importance of the personnel uh, in the operation of a nuclear power plant, both under normal conditions and under emergency conditions. Uh, my understanding is that the staffing at the plant is perhaps less than half it was before the invasion. Uh, that itself is a concern, uh, putting uh, undue burden on those that are left. But you compound that with the uh, pressure that the uh, Russian military is putting on the staff that may influence their ability to carry out their activities uh, in, in an unrestricted fashion. And it's also important to have clear lines of command, as uh, IA Director General Grossi pointed out. If there is an accident, you have to know who's in charge, and there may only be a matter of a few hours to respond uh, before you preventing a meltdown. So it's very important that the staff be uh, well-rested, not be under stress, know who's in command, and be able to do what they need to do and go where they need to go. And if they can't, if there's any indication uh, of those restrictions, then it raises questions about the ability of the personnel to respond effectively to an accident. Another issue is the fire brigade. A fire in a nuclear power plant is a very severe uh, event and could lead to uh, widespread uh, damage to safety systems and lead to multiple meltdowns. However, the fire brigade at the um, Zaporizhia had to be relocated because shelling damaged the fire station on the site. That means they're going to have a longer time to respond if something does happen to the plant. So all these are, are uh, of great concern. Edwin, I wanted to ask you about the nuclear power plants, not only in uh, Ukraine, uh, but all over, related to climate change, this catastrophe that's being experienced around the world. When we were at the UN Climate Summit in Katowice a few years ago, Afterwards, um, I flew to Ukraine, and in so many towns and cities, there are monuments to those who died at Chernobyl. Um, that was a different situation, but explain the crisis of climate change and nuclear power when water levels go down that cool the fuel rods. Yes, well, nuclear power plants are often touted as a solution to climate change because when they operate, uh, they don't release uh, greenhouse gases. But you have to consider that in the context of their risks compared to renewable energy sources that don't have the potential for a catastrophic accident. 
And what you're referring to is the impact of climate change on nuclear power and the fact that uh, nuclear power plants, at least current generation plants, require a, a consistent, steady supply of cool water to remove heat from, from the cores when they're operating. So if climate change uh, stresses nuclear power plants by uh, droughts, by reducing uh, water levels in lakes and rivers, and by increasing uh, temperature, that puts constraints on the operation of nuclear plants because they can't, they can't operate if, they're, they're cool, if the cooling water they have access to is too warm. So they, that when you see uh, heat waves, and uh, we've seen this in uh, France, uh, but also occasionally in the United States, when water levels, uh, when water temperatures get too high, the plants have to derate or even shut down. So that's certainly uh, something you have to keep in mind when you think about increasing the use of nuclear power as a, a climate mitigation option. And Edwin, uh, you've raised concerns also about what the impact of this might be on agricultural lands uh, around the uh, uh, plant and, and well beyond it. Uh, you know, Ukraine is considered uh, uh, one of the breadbaskets of the world. What do you think, uh, what are your concerns about that? And did you have similar concerns also? You've, you've co-authored a book on Fukushima. Uh, what happened following that disaster, as well as Chernobyl. When you consider the all the impacts of a large release of radioactivity from a nuclear plant accident, you have to consider both the direct impacts of exposure on the public, um, but also you have to look at the contamination of water supplies and the contamination of agricultural lands. And certainly, uh, uh, in uh, Fukushima Prefecture, there was widespread radiological contamination that not only led to the need to uh, sample and occasionally interdict uh, uh, food supplies, both uh, agricultural products and, of course, fish, because the uh, uh, fishing industry in that prefecture was, was critical. Uh, but even when the detected radiation levels were lower, there was still the psychological stigma associated with uh, foodstuffs that come from the vicinity of the accident. So, uh, and, but in the case of Ukraine... Uh, Zaporizhia is located in, near uh, these uh, very fertile agricultural lands, and even if a radiological release didn't travel that far, for instance, uh, across the international borders, it could still have a big impact on, on agriculture there and potentially taint the um, exports that are so important to the rest of the world. Well, Edmund Lyman, we want to thank you for being with us, Director of Nuclear Power Safety, Union of Concerned Scientists, co-author of Fukushima, The Story of a Nuclear Disaster. And we'll link to your piece, Can the Zaporizhia Nuclear Plant Avoid a Major Disaster? And we want to thank Alexei Pasyuk in Kyiv, Ukraine, with the Ukrainian NGO EcoAction. Next up, Somalia's facing a looming famine. We'll go to Mogadishu to speak with the U.N. humanitarian coordinator for Somalia. And we'll go to Ethiopia, where drought is devastating East Africa. Stay with us. I begged and I borrowed, all ragged with sorrow. Yeah. 
by Masha Sokol. Here on Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report, I'm Amy Goodman with Nermeen Sheikh. The United Nations is warning of a looming famine in Somalia, where searing drought fueled by the climate crisis has withered crops, killed livestock, left nearly 8 million people, half Somalia's population, in need of humanitarian assistance. The UN's humanitarian chief, Martin Griffith, spoke in the capital Mogadishu after touring camps for internally displaced people and visiting hospitals treating malnourished children. Griffith said afterwards, hundreds of thousands of people are at imminent risk of death. I've been shocked to my core these past few days by the level of pain and suffering we see so many Somalis enduring. Famine is at the door, and today we are receiving a final warning. The unprecedented failure of four consecutive rainy seasons, decades of conflict, mass displacement, severe economic issues are pushing many people to that, the brink of famine. According to the United Nations, 730 Somali children died this year at food and nutrition centers between January and July alone. The centers were set up to help children with severe acute malnutrition. Audrey Crawford of the Danish Refugee Council is warning the crisis may soon get even worse. Famine is on our doorsteps, and we're going to be witnessing the death of children on an unimaginable scale in the last months of 2022 if we don't act fast. 30,000 people have been arriving and moving between IDP camps each week over the past weeks, which is an increase of 135% on recent months. Over a million people have displaced internally this year so far. Most of them have walked for up to 10 days in search of food and water, arriving with literally nothing in a deteriorated state, with malnourished children or children who have died. Many of the mothers I have talked to had buried children in the previous days, either from contracting diarrhea or measles in the overly congested camps or along the way from malnutrition. To talk more about the looming famine in Somalia and what's happening right now, we're joined by two guests. From Addis Ababa, Ethiopia, Milion Bilai, General Coordinator of the Alliance for Food Sovereignty in Africa, also member of the International Panel of Experts on Sustainable Food Systems. And in Mogadishu, Somalia, Adam Abdelmullah is with us, Deputy Special Representative of the United Nations Secretary General and UN Humanitarian Coordinator for Somalia. Dr. Abdel We'll begin with you on the ground in Mogadishu. Can you describe more what is happening? We keep using words like looming, but in fact, the crisis is there now when you have this number of children, not to mention adults, who are already dying. Well, uh, Ferris, thank you for having me. Uh, as you rightly said, the current unprecedented drought uh, that is a result of four uh, consecutive failed rainy seasons, with the sixth, uh, the fifth and the sixth projected to also be below average, is causing acute food insecurity. As we speak, 7.1 million Somalis are acutely food insecure. Among them, 1.5 million children below the age of five are acutely 
malnourished. Within this category, there are 365,000 who are severely um, malnourished and may not make it by the end of October this year. Um, the figures you cited of the deaths are actually uh, those of the children who managed to make it to the feeding centers and the hospitals. In the countryside, in hard reach and inaccessible areas, the numbers are much, much greater, and the rates of death among children are much higher. 80% of the internally displaced are women and children. So we are looking at a perfect storm. As the emergency relief coordinator said during his uh, press statement here, the Famine Review Committee uh, assessed that famine would hit Somalia sometime between mid-October and uh, December unless we miraculously manage to uh, upscale our humanitarian response. And that is, by all accounts, a very big if, given the current level of resources that we have at hand. And Dr. Abdelmoula, you've uh, spent time visiting uh, these hospitals. Could you describe what you saw there, uh, as well as these feeding centers? What kind of resources exist to take care uh, of children who are already suffering from severe malnutrition? You know, uh, decades of conflict and the absence of a central uh, government have uh, rendered the health facilities in Somalia uh, very, very fragile. And many of these uh, hospitals and, and uh, health centers are um, suffering from shortages of medicines, supplies, uh, nutrition um, supplies in particular, and also um, adequately trained um, personnel. The, the scenes that we see uh, in these hospitals, especially uh, in the feeding centers uh, um, uh, in these hospitals, are truly uh, gut-wrenching. I tweeted about this, and I posted uh, some pictures, and if you look at my uh, Twitter account, you will find some of those pictures. And I still say, these are the lucky ones who made it uh, to, the, to the health centers. Imagine those in, in the, the hinterland, uh, in hard-to-reach areas, or areas that are under the control of uh, armed groups. Um, the situation is much, much worse in, 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 in those areas. Um, with regard to the supplies and the nutrition uh, supplies in particular, um, we have been suffering from uh, shortages of funding that resulted in um, supply chain disruptions. Up until uh, June this year, the humanitarian response plan with its drought component for 2022 uh, were only 18% funded. Then th thanks to the United States and uh, the infusion of resources that it provided, uh, in August, our uh, funding levels jumped to over 60%, 67% uh, to be precise, uh, for uh, the humanitarian response plan for 2022. But the plan itself has been outpaced 
by the growing needs because it was conceived sometime at the end of last year. And since then, the numbers of those in need have been steadily growing. Milian Balai, you are in uh, Addis Ababa. Could you describe what the situation is there in Ethiopia and also elaborate on what the causes uh, of this crisis are uh, across East Africa? I think there is always a food shortage in our parts of the world. Um, And also, I think in Kenya also, I think close to three point five people are suffering. And in total, uh, my brother can correct me, um, it's about 20 million. I think the the drought is uh, very, very serious. I think the big question for me is, why is this happening? Um, what has kind of sucked um, our resilience, you know, um, as Africans, as uh, both at the country level and at the continental level, so that every time this happens, we extend our begging bowls to uh, to the others, you know? I think that's a, that's a very important question. Somalia, for example, as uh, uh, my, my brother said, before the war, uh, they were producing plenty, and now they are, they are producing half of what they were producing before, you know? Um, so I think the first culprit would be the climate, uh, the climate change, um, I think the recent IPCC prediction is uh, uh, probably in the future over 50% of maize producing area, uh, close to 30% of bean producing area would be no more, you know. Um, so, so climate change. I think the frequency of these droughts, uh, the severity of these droughts is increasing and climate change is a cause. And... Um, what is the response of the whole, the global response? I think the global uh, citizens' response is growing, but the government is, is astoundingly uh, is, uh, is short. Uh, for example, the British, uh, I mean, the UK has now a new prime minister, and what's that plan? Um, who has she assigned as her energy minister? It's not somebody who is addressing this climate situation. So there is a huge injustice built into the system. And um, the Eastern African countries in all over Africa, we are suffering uh, because of the problem that they are causing. And uh, historically also, African agriculture was on decline because of historical factors. I think before the uh, European uh, maritime influence, before colonialism, um, it is well documented that Africa uh, has a, a very complex socio-economic and political system in terms of trade and agriculture, and that was disrupted hugely uh, during European maritime and slave trade, and also later by colonialism and even uh, post-independence. That kind of influence has, has continued. Even now, new actors are coming in instead of, in addition to governments, New philanthropic capitalists are coming with their own uh, methods of, uh, with their own solution for Africa. We can uh, mention the, the Gates Foundation, for example, as one of the foundation which has created an institution called the Alliance for Green Revolution uh, in Africa, um, basically promoting uh, um, agrochemicals, you know, high yielding varieties of seeds. 
market-oriented agriculture, this kind of thing, which sucks again the resilience of our agriculture for the future. It doesn't build uh, sustainability, doesn't build resilience. Um, so, you know, that all the problems that we faced with, uh, with army war, with desert army war, um, with, uh, with um, you know, with the drought, these are all exacerbated by the bad models of development that we are following as an Africa, and that's also the and, influence from, from outside. And yeah. Milion Bilai, how exacerbated are these issues by the war in Ukraine? There's two things there. One is every week we're reading about the millions and billions of dollars that are going into the war in Ukraine yeah. that could be used elsewhere. Uh, but number two, um, Ukraine and Russia, among the largest—Russia, the largest exporter of grain, also Russia of fertilizer—how does this affect? Africa? Hugely. Um, The the cost of fuel has increased. This is very, very significant in Africa because the price of uh, uh, commodities, food commodities, will rise in response to the the price of uh, fuel. Fertilizer, you know, we're laid into a past dependence. We're dependent on uh, external inputs for for our agriculture. And that external input, especially uh, fertilizers, you know, artificial fertilizers, come also in huge, to huge extent from uh, from Russia uh, mainly. And uh, the, 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 there are parts of Africa, the Northern Africa, uh, and also other parts of Africa who depend uh, on wheat that is produced from from Ukraine and Russia. And oil, the, the price of oil is incredible now now in Africa. And this is brings a very, very critical question, a very critical agenda. I think the agenda for Africa now is food sovereignty. We have to be sovereign. We can't be depending on other countries, on, on the bad model of development and um, on the whims and plans of others. I think that's very clear now. Uh, Dr. Abdulmullah, finally, if you could also uh, respond to this, talk about the impact of uh, the war of Russia's invasion of Ukraine and the fact that <clears throat> not just uh, 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 the, the provision of Russia and Ukraine uh, providing food for uh, uh, East Africa and large parts of the world, grain, fuel and fertilizer, but also the World Food Program uh, depended for 75 uh, percent of its food came from Russia and Ukraine. Yeah, um, before that, uh, if you allow me just to comment on what my, my brother just said. Um, the the real cause of the crisis that we see in Somalia right now is actually uh, a development deficit. As Somalis are dying in droves uh, because of the drought, the country still has two rivers that still flow uh, day in and day out uh, right into the Indian Ocean, uh, unharvested and unutilized. Um, you go to the countryside, you see... Uh, livestock dying of, of of thirst and lack of water. So this is in in essence is a lack of climate adaptation, lack uh, um, uh, high level of uh, uh, fragility, uh, and the answer is not to keep dumping relief um, year in and year out, but rather to address the, the root causes and to do adequate uh, climate adaptation. Uh, climate change is here to stay. It is unprecedented to see four failed, uh, failed rainy seasons with the projected uh, fifth one uh, looming. Uh, that, is, that is the answer. 
But for now, we are uh, much more focused on life-saving activities, and, and we are uh, um, trying to save as many as we can. With regard to the impact of the Ukraine, um, the war in Ukraine on, on Somalia, um, there are several things to be said here. Not only um, the, the fact that some of the wheat imports that used to come to Somalia used to come from uh, Russia and, and, and Ukraine, um, the, the, the ratio being uh, 50% from Ukraine, 75% from Russia, and all of that has come to a complete hole. But also the war has co uh, caused uh, disruption of supply chains. And that led to an increase in the price of essential commodities here by as high as 140 to 160%. Um, also, the, the fuel uh, shortages, this is mostly an informal economy, uh, and that uh, uh, continues to, to suffer from the, um, from the uh, global uh, disruptions as well as the uh, effects of uh, COVID-19. Doctor, um, we just so, have 30 seconds, so if you could say what's most important to happen right now. Yeah, the most important thing is that uh, we have a very short window of opportunity to step off the specter of uh, famine in, in Somalia. And that window is closing very fast. We need resources. We need them now uh, in order to scale up and save as many lives as we can. Dr. Adam Abdulmullah, U.N. Humanitarian Coordinator for Somalia, speaking to us from Ogadisha, Somalia, and Miliam Belay, Alliance for Food Sovereignty in Africa, speaking to us from Addis Ababa, Ethiopia. Next up, attack philanthropy. We learn more about details on how a secretive right-wing billionaire, Barry Side, has used his fortune to attack climate science, fight Medicaid expansion, and more. Stay with us. Why do people have to live outside in the brutal heat or when it's below freezing? There are people that are made to live outside. Why? Why? By Chat Pile. This is Democracy Now! I'm Amy Goodman with Nermeen Sheikh as we end today's show with new revelations about how the secretive right-wing billionaire Barry Side conducts what he calls attack philanthropy. Last month, The Lever and ProPublica and The New York Times first exposed how Side used his electronics fortune to pack the Supreme Court with a conservative supermajority. Now details from emails released through open records requests show Side also backed the Heartland Institute, which has spent decades attacking 
mainstream climate science. He also secretly funded groups that fight Medicaid expansion and work to reshape the education system. For more, we're joined by Andrew Perez, senior editor and reporter at The Lever. He co-reported this new expose with ProPublica's Andy Kroll and Justin Elliott, headlined, How a Billionaire's Attack Philanthropy Secretly Funded Climate Denialism and Right-Wing Causes. Welcome back to Democracy Now! Andrew, as you bring us each chapter of this new um, investigation. Again, this is the Manberry side, who people know very little about, who has now just committed $1.6 billion to a new right-wing uh, group to reshape America. Tell us the latest that you've learned. Sure. That's right. So, we recently reported about how Barry Side uh, converted his electronics company into a $1.6 billion donation for Leonard Leo, the right-wing uh, Supreme Court uh, architect. And what we've reported now is, you know, we spoke to people who know Side. We uh, reviewed emails we obtained through public records requests. And um, we got a sense of what his uh, philanthropic approach looks like. And what, what he calls that is attack philanthropy. Um, and the idea is making, um, you know, financial bets that have the, the, the power to make uh, transformative change on politics and society. And that's, you know, clearly what we saw happen with with his giant donation to uh, to Leonard Leo's new nonprofit. And could you explain, Andrew, what exactly is the Heartland Institute? What are its origins and what is its principal work? Sure. Um, so uh, Barry Side, we we understand his is considered to be the major patron um, for the Heartland Institute. Uh, the Heartland Institute has long been a hotbed of climate denial, um, pushing the idea that uh, the sun and solar cycles are responsible for changing uh, planetary temperatures, not uh, human activities. Um, and they also have a, a history of uh, of questioning uh, the health impacts and, and risks of smoking. And can you explain what what most surprised you in this? Uh, I mean, over the course of this investigation, what have you been most surprised by? Yeah, I mean, so you know, people are were some some, some campaign finance reporters were loosely aware of Barry's side, um, but what we learned is that he's become uh, you know fabulously wealthy over between 1996 and, and 2018. He he uh, took in 1.7 billion dollars in in income. Um, and in that time, he, we, he donated at least $775 million to nonprofits. So he is a giant, giant donor, probably one of the most, one of the largest donors in the U.S. Um, and, and very, very little known. So, Andrew Perez, um, you keep learning more. Um, you talked to a close friend of Barry Side, B-A-R-R-E. S-E-I-D. Um, uh, he said um, that Sai described himself as prone to anonymity paranoia. So this leads to this issue of dark money. This is changing the landscape of politics in the United States. Um, can you talk about what he wants to do with education, with Medicaid, uh, and, of course, the denial of climate science? Yeah, well, so he's funding groups like the Harleen Institute that are, are uh, you know, hotbeds of climate denial. Um, he's, he's funding groups like the State Policy Network that, uh, that push 
that have opposed Medicaid expansion, that push deregulation and tax cuts at the state level, um, that have pushed voting restrictions. Um, and, you know, now he's giving money to Leonard Leo, who is, you know, we understand Side considers himself to be a libertarian, but, you know, Leonard Leo is a staunch social conservative um, who has, you know, built the Supreme Court to, uh, to tear down abortion rights in this country. Um, so, you know, we, we, we see that he's funding a, a very, very radical right-wing program. And education? Um, well, so he, he's funded a lot of, uh, we believe, some universities. He, he, he appears to be the, uh, the, the donor who gave $20 million to uh, rename George Mason University's law school after Antonin Scalia. Um, you know, we see that he was frequently emailing with, uh, with professors there, with uh, one he was particularly friendly with, as well as the dean. And, you know, you could see that they were uh, quite, quite eager to, eager to please him. He, he's also been, um, we believe, a donor to Hillsdale College, which, um, you know, has, has come up in recent years and that it's uh, helped undermine uh, the idea or, or undermine uh, the science related to COVID. Um, and it's, it's also served as sort of a feeder for uh, the Trump administration for jobs there. Why these two universities and colleges in particular, Hillsdale College and uh, George Mason University? Yeah, well, so with Hillsdale, we understand that, uh, that Barry is uh, quite, quite interested in the great books curriculum, um, you know, these kind of Western classics. With George Mason, um, it's, you know, it's, it's a university that uh, is politically influential. It's right outside the nation's capital. Um, and it's, it's become, you know, this, this sort of Supreme Court university. Um, it's the law school is named after Antonin Scalia. And then, we, you know, we see that uh, judge, judges Clarence Thomas, Brett Kavanaugh, Neil Gorsuch have, have taught there uh, in recent years as well. We want to thank you, Andrew Perez, for being with us, senior editor and reporter at The Lever. We'll link to your new expose with ProPublica, how a billionaire's attack philanthropy secretly funded climate denialism and right-wing causes. That does it for our show. Democracy Now! is currently accepting applications for a people and culture manager. If you are or know someone who's interested in HR, please go to democracynow.org and apply uh, at that website or send it around to others you know. Democracy Now! produced with Renee Fels, Mike Burke, Dina Guzder, Messiah Rhodes, Maria Tarasena, Trina Nadura. I'm Amy Goodman with Nermeen Sheikh. Stay safe.